This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. Employment and education prospects for people with disabilities vary depending on where you live. Admittedly, we have a long way to go in Canada to achieve employment equity for the disability community. But there are many countries around the world where people with disabilities struggle to access basic services, a good education, and secure employment. So imagine being a preteen with a disability, living in a developing country. You feel deeply uncertain about your future. And then the entire course of your life changes when you arrive in Canada. Suddenly, opportunities and pathways open up for you that you hadn't previously imagined possible as a person with a disability. Today, we discuss migration, career development, and disability. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joyita Gupta. This month, October, is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. Often, to celebrate Disability Employment Awareness Month or to raise awareness about it, I bring on experts and we talk to academics and we talk to employment experts on the program. But I wanted to try and do something a little different this month. I thought to myself, hey, Juita, you're an ordinary person with a disability. You've had an employment journey. You've had ups and downs, things that have worked out for you and things that didn't go to plan. But surely there are other people with disabilities out there whose employment journey would be equally riveting. So what I'm going to try and do is over the course of the next few weeks for Disability Employment Awareness Month, I'm going to try and track down some amazing people with disabilities who will share with us their employment journey. And now if you're listening and you're thinking, hey, that's me, I'm an amazing person with a disability and I want to share my employment journey, be my guest. Write us an email, write to feedback at ami.ca and pitch your story. Just let us know that you would like to appear on The Pulse and you're a person with a disability and you want to share your employment journey with us. Or you can find us on Twitter, write to at AMI audio, use the hashtag PulseAMI and say, hey, I want to be interviewed on The Pulse and I want to talk to you, Joita, but also you as the audience about my employment journey, the things that I felt worked out for me and the things that I felt didn't work out for me. So please feel free to be bold about pitching your story and telling your story. But for today, my guest is Caroline Bordeaux. Caroline is a trained lawyer, a mediator, and accessibility tester. She joins us today from Toronto. Caroline Bordeaux, welcome to the program. It's really nice to have you on, on The Pulse. I've been uh, wanting to interview you for a very long time, actually. Thank you. So Caroline, you immigrated to Canada when you were 12, you came with your family. And one of the things you said was that right up to that point, you felt that your future was quite bleak. Why is that? Um, where I was living, I was not allowed to go to school um, because of being a blind person, uh, specifically more so a, a female. Um, and I had no idea what was going to happen. As a 12-year-old, you don't really think that much into, like, what am I going to do later on beyond, mm -hmm. you know, I think I want to do this. But for me, mm -hmm. those didn't exist. I had no idea what it is I wanted to do. And 
and you know even if it's possible to do anything yeah it's it's a very interesting contrast because when i because like you i'm an immigrant and when i came to canada i realized that if you were a student with a disability in canada you actually got a lot of support in secondary school education you had people who would help you by you know scanning your textbooks or taking notes for you in class you would get a lot of assistance Tell me a little bit about why it wasn't possible for you to obtain an education as a blind woman, or I guess at that stage, a blind preteen. Were those opportunities just not available and were the supports just not available for someone like you where you lived? Yeah. So I tried to go to school a couple of times. Um, What happened was the schools just said it's too much liability. Uh, We don't have the resources to take care of somebody who's blind so thanks but no thanks and Mm -hmm. uh, i was self-educated at home kind of my my father was very much an academic and he made sure that i learned how to read in arabic and that was extremely challenging because um as the my eyes got worse the print got smaller for me and Mm -hmm. It was more exhausting, but, you know, I remember as a nine-year-old trying to argue politics with the men. Uh, You know, your story resonates with me because I'm reminded of uh, a couple of incidents in my childhood when I was trying to go to school. I did end up getting an education, but there were some stumbling blocks along the way. I remember this one instance where they took me to a dark and dingy room. There was hardly any light whatsoever. And they said, can you identify the difference between these two pictures? (laughs) <laughs> and I'm I'm blind, right? <laughs> no one ever said that this was a problem. Now, you're a lawyer today. And one of the things that I think about in reflecting on my experience that I just related to you is that that was an okay thing to ask someone to do at an interview. No one said or thought that that was discriminatory. Did you also feel that where you lived, there was an absence of legislation and a determination about how certain things were exclusionary or discriminatory? Uh, There was no legislation that I was aware of. And I think people with disabilities were basically kept out of the public. You know, you you heard stories from people where, you know, this child is deaf and they've been locked in a closet, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. for the first eight years of their lives or something. And it's not an unheard of story. And... Mm -hmm. uh, as it is so yeah it is very sad now let's though fast forward a little bit so you've been getting an education at home your father's been trying to teach you arabic and you're all up for arguing with the men about politics at that point you moved to canada when you are 12 years old what sort of opportunities opened up for you once you came to canada well first of all i had to learn english um and as as an immigrant, uh, you probably experience this yourself where you're learning English, but it's like the formal English of a textbook. So mm-hmm. the, the language are not there. You don't have the history. You don't have the pop culture. You don't understand. Um, but for me, it wasn't about any of that. I was um, thirsty for as much as I could grab. So I was the kid that everyone hated and um, bullied because I'd ask for more homework. And <laughs> I, I didn't have a life anyway, right? So I might as well do something useful. So um, 
you know, I, I, I read more, I did more, I learned how to handwrite. Now, asking a blind person to learn how to handwrite and being told you have to have good handwriting was very odd. Um, mm -hmm. Nonetheless, it happened when they probably should have been teaching me a bit of Braille. But it doesn't matter. Like, my goal was to learn anything and everything that I could. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you learn anything and everything that you could and eventually end up with two arts degrees, not to mention a law degree at Queen's University. Tell me a little bit about your years as a student at Queen's University. How accessible were classrooms? How easily accessible were your course materials? Did you feel that everything went smoothly or were there a couple of barriers along the way? Oh, there were lots of uh, hiccups and barriers. Um... <laughs> Uh, and, and I have to say, technology moved along really quickly at the time. So what my experience would have been in first and second year of undergrad to what it was in law school in some ways were very different. So when I started at Queens, everything was on a cassette tape. So you'd get your mm -hmm. text on cassettes and you would have to listen to those cassettes and keep rewinding to get the information again and again. And through no fault of their own, disability services could not sometimes give me my textbooks in time. So I remember this horrid course in second year, political theory. Um, I got my textbook like two days or three days before the exam. Oh. Um, so it, the fact that I passed it was some kind of miracle um, because the professor was not very uh, helpful or kind. Um, and uh, she just had no empathy <laughs> for anyone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fast forward to like when I went to law school in first year, we had some cassette tapes because I remember uh, listening to constitutional law on cassette tapes and peace, order and good government on repeat is a recipe for sleep. <laughs> uh, so I sped up the material. I kept speeding up the cassette tape and speeding it up. So people listen to my computer now and they're like, how do you understand that? And I said, well, I can fix it. You just have to listen to constitutional law for like a whole weekend and see how fast <laughs> Yeah, no, the, the the cassette tapes of years gone by, the four track cassette tapes, that brings back a lot of memories as well. But um, when you start to work, you article as a law student, but then you eventually end up working as a mediator. What happened there? What made you decide you wanted to be a mediator? Or was it just that practicing the law was just too stressful? Well, there were a few factors. One was the the kind of law I wanted to do was not going to pay the bills. I did criminal law. That was my first love, I guess. And you, when you start, you have to be on the legal aid system. So mm -hmm. people who can't afford a lawyer are given certificates, and then those certificates dictate how many hours you get to work on somebody's case. And it is most inadequate. You know, you had to work extra hard to move things along quickly, and the system didn't help that. So that was one stressor. Another mm -hmm. stressor was that I just kept being sick and having to go to the hospital, not understanding what's going on. Um, I then realized that it was, you know, way too stressful for me in so many ways. Um, mm -hmm. Either the, the clients, the system, I, I can't pinpoint exactly what it is. 
I figured out that law was not really the thing I wanted to do. So I went searching for something else. And mediation had always been attractive to me. I studied um, mediation in law school and liked it. And I like what I liked about it is that it's a conversation and people have to come willingly to mediation. You don't force mediation on somebody. And as a mediator, your job is to make sure everyone's heard and help them come to the resolution that they want. I'm Joita Gutta, and today we're talking with Caroline Bordeaux, who is a trained lawyer, mediator, and accessibility tester. Caroline, I am curious because so many of us as people with disabilities have these day-to-day interactions with people, where there's ableism, there's discrimination, and I often feel that those interactions tend to escalate in ways that people might want to avoid. Do you find that as a mediator, you've had some Uh, Maybe you've gained some skills along the way that have helped you navigate those situations in a constructive fashion? I would think so. Um, There are some people that are just not reasonable or whatever is going on for them that day that they're they're not going to hear you. And we know what happens with those ones. Um, I don't know if you in your research came across the Iki Sushi story, which had a lot of traction, but I think the man there was not going to listen to reason and it it took more to get him to understand how it is but a lot of the time you can talk to people explain to them what's going on and why and i have to explain that the discrimination that i faced a lot uh, which was public and brought me to the tribunal multiple times had to do with the fact that i use a guide dog and Mm -hmm. uh, like for example my very first one was in Kingston, the store was called Kingston Bazaar. It was a grocery store. Um, it was a new grocery store, and I was excited to go see what they had. Um, and I was walking in there with my black lab guide dog, who was extremely docile. He was an older dog at that time, just a very gentle guy. And because I realized the store was kind of tight, I kept him very, very, very close. So he didn't go near anyone or anything. But the man, I think he was the owner, came out and said that my dog is scaring people, that we needed to leave. And I said, no, my dog's not doing anything. In fact, there has been no one in the aisle where we were um, because I would have heard them. Mm -hmm. And he just didn't want to hear it. So then he said, you know, we had to leave. But what was interesting there too was, um, and I wonder if that was a cultural thing but he kept on addressing my husband not me and he Mm -hmm. kept telling him that he had to remove the dog and uh, my husband said well it's not my dog I don't get to remove him or not remove him you know (laughs) I have no control over what the dog does it is not my dog Um, that didn't register with the man so we ended up doing two things we ended up going to the human rights tribunal um, and we also ended up going to the police um, because I wasn't sure how I wanted to go about this. So I contacted the police. Um, They came, they investigated. We had a trial. And uh, interestingly, because I was involved in the court system at the time, they had to bring in a judge and a crown from a different jurisdiction because uh, I'm familiar to the other judges Mm -hmm. and and crowns. And the, the judge kept asking, you mean that dog because you know their their statement was that this dog was vicious and all of this stuff and of course black labs are not are not 
very suspicious. (laughs) And so he got a huge fine, um, actually unprecedented for this kind of offense. It was a provincial offense, and he got $4,000 fine. Um, And then uh, he failed to show up to any of the human rights stuff. So he was ordered to pay $18,000 for human rights. Did not see a cent of any of it. The court never got their $4,000 because I think the guy skipped the country. So that was Mm. one incident. But there are others where, you know, speaking to them, explaining what's going on and being really calm and friendly about it helps. And I think those are skills you pick up. Just dealing with people and then, of course, being a mediator helps. (laughs) And when you're a mediator, does it ever come up, your disability? Do people wonder about your capabilities on the job when they see this, you know, person coming in with a a guide dog? Does that evoke surprise or trepidation or are people cool with it? For mediation, people are really cool with it. Um, And I've developed my own little icebreaker um, which is, you know, when we're going into the mediation room itself, uh, which is not the first step, by the way. So usually when I do mediation, I meet with the parties separately for an hour or so, weeks before, to talk about what their issues are, what they want to see, that sort of thing, also to build rapport with them. And then preferably we do this in person. But of course, with COVID, I could imagine um, that we would do it differently. And so when we go to the mediation area, what I normally do is I would just say, could you, you know, help me grab some stuff? I, I will take my dog off my off the harness and I will say to them, here, can, can you just watch him while I rearrange the room? And by the time we are done, the room is rearranged, they're not just playing with the dog, but they're also um, talking to each other. Oh, <laughs> that's such a great idea. It's really smart. Um, you mentioned COVID-19. So what has the impact of the pandemic been on you in terms of your work? Are you still uh, working in, uh, during the pandemic? Has, uh, has how you worked changed? Are you trying out new things because of COVID-19? What's been the overall impact? So a lot has changed as of COVID-19. Now, um, when COVID-19 happened, I was working as an accessibility tester, and Mm. most of that happened from home. So my work really didn't change until um, April of this year, uh, when I uh, left the accessibility testing job and joined a different kind of uh, company where we coach students in the school system Um, on how to use their access technology. So Mm. I meet with students of all ages um, from K to 12, and uh, they are just so interesting and so different, and each of them brings their own experience. Um, And some of them have never really used accessible, like accessible technology at all. Some of them have used it so much that they're actually like stages ahead of Mm -hmm. anything. I have one guy who is creating his own uh, programs. (laughs) Wow. There are things he's just not, he doesn't have. So, you know, we're kind of making sure he gets a good rounded um, set of skills. But that has been so much fun. And because of COVID-19, we developed a virtual blind low vision camp 
and the kids were from all over the province. They actually got to network with each other over a two-week period. They were half-day sessions because you can't sit at the computer for longer than that. Mm. And the conversations that took place were just phenomenal. Like, you know, a grade four student talking to a grade 12 student and they find out that they have things in common. And in some places, they're like the only blind students at the school or they are the only low vision person at their area. So the fact that they found other people like them was just phenomenal. So I'm hoping that that will happen again. So yeah, my work has changed, but it I think has changed for positive things. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Now, I would love to keep talking to you, but I'm looking at the clock and we only <laughs> have about three minutes left. So let me ask you the question that I think everyone wants me to ask, which is you've had this interesting and varied career. What advice would you give other job seekers with disabilities or just a job seeker who's visually impaired? How have you made things work out for you? Being open to new things and not saying, oh, no, you know, I I can't do that. And basically talking to everyone and anyone. Um, The way I got this job, I was talking to a colleague at a conference and I said, oh, I love working with kids. And he said, really? Do you want to coach kids? And I said, well, maybe. So nothing came of the conversation for like months, um, like I think a year, actually. Then he called and said, so remember that conversation about coaching kids? Well, I think they're hiring. Do you want to apply? So, oh, wow. Um, it, you just never know where it's going to come from. Um, and you never know what it's going to be. Just know your skills and uh, try anything that sounds interesting. The one piece of advice that I've always given, and I think it feels to me like it's gotten me into some trouble, but that's okay is if you start a job and you don't love it and Sunday night becomes like a dreaded time, that's a sign for you to look for something else. That's really powerful because often as people with disabilities, we think maybe that something else won't come along or, you know, I'm where I am and I shouldn't rock the boat. Caroline Bordeaux, thank you very much for speaking to us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Caroline Bordeaux is a trained lawyer, mediator, and accessibility tester. She's now, of course, coaching kids, as you heard. Some breaking news right here on The Pulse. And she joined us today from Toronto. If you missed any of my conversation with Caroline Bordeaux, you can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. The technical producer for The Pulse is Nasreen Abdul-Majid. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. And Paula Deneen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.